Good morning and welcome to The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, uh, we'll be getting a step-to-step guide to switching bank provider and time is not on your side. Does your town centre need regeneration? Well, we'll be discussing a community initiative to explore what that might look like. Interior designer to the stars, Arlene McIntyre, will be here for your Q&A and we'll be showing you easy ways to start decluttering that wardrobe. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here on The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. You can listen live or listen back to the show and our podcasts on the Newstalk website or on the Newstalk app, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, whenever I walk around the city or peruse the property pages, I'm always struck by the prettiness of little artesian cottages. So these are old homes in the main that were built maybe 50, 80 years ago. They, lots of them, of course, nowadays are remodelled beautifully, but they're tiny and perfectly formed. These weren't often built by the state or a private developer, but by companies who wanted to provide housing for workers and keep them nearby. Guinness, of course, uh, are one of the best known examples of this. But Board Mamona was also responsible for many of these in the 1950s. And I'm going to be finding out more about that a little uh, later on. But look, let me know, do you think maybe modern employers, the big pharma companies or the Googlers, the Pfizer's, the Intel's, should they be doing this for their workers now? Would that be a way of dealing with the housing issues and crisis that we have and maybe encourage workers to both come to Ireland, work for these companies and more importantly, stay put? Well, look, let me know. I'd love to know what you think. Is there a big factory or employer near you who might have land available that could start doing this and what would involve? And would you like to see it? And would you be more inclined to buy a house there? Well, if so, get in touch 53106 or email us at com, and you're very welcome along this morning. So with that in mind um, and talking about all things to do with architecture and the future of all of that, well, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Bernardine Carroll, who is in the engagement curator at the Irish Architecture Foundation. And she's here to talk about two really exciting projects that they are currently involved in. Bernardine, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here oh, it's in nice, person. It's well. nice to have you. IRL, as the kids say. <laughs> now, uh, OK, so let's start with the one now, because these are two distinct things. The one that involved the cash prizes, right? This is the Hometown Architect Initiative. Um, Tell us a little bit about what it involves. Sure. I mean, this is, um, it's actually part of a programme we've been running for the last few years called Reimagine. So initially funded by Creative Ireland, it was a pilot that we developed to look at what would happen if we essentially matched up a community with an architect to look at something that they're having to think about themselves. You know, what would they do if they had an architect to help them think through something, looking at something in their built environment. So it's something about the common good. It's something spatially usually, something to do with placemaking, which is a a lovely term we use a lot in the Architecture Foundation. It is, but describe to us mere mortals what that means. Um, I think that placemaking is really about looking at how we design a sense of place into where we live, work, play. So, I mean, if we're looking at how uh, we design new places or redesign the places we already live, what is it as something that gives it that sense of place? And it could be it could be a, a distinctive building, it could be the urban design, it could be the natural landscape. Placemaking comes 
a lot from maybe design language around urbanism that comes from like let's say commercial sectors being developed where they want to develop a new shopping district and they'll have public art and murals and things but mm. actually it's expanded it's quite broad we're doing it already a lot in Ireland and how we you know you tidy towns groups all over Ireland are doing placemaking when they think about how they welcome visitors into their towns you know yeah. so that's what we see as placemaking but we're looking particularly at the role of architecture and the built environment in that. Now I was interested to see because you know whenever you have a new project starting in a town or a village there's a whole ream of people involved in that from mm. the planning right through to the brickies. But this seems to be a little bit unusual in the sense that, OK, it's community led, but the architect it has a local involvement. They were either born there, they live mm. there or there's something. What difference do you think that'll make? We have been finding in the last couple of years that the projects we we're running where the architect has a local connection, there's a lasting relationship there that like lives, lives beyond the project. So in this particular stage of the programme, we are looking at communities to work at architects who already have a connection to them mm. so that not only are they creating a lasting impact, but there's maybe a skills exchange there that's happening. There is a someone they can pick up the phone and ask, do you know anything about this grant in 10 years time? You know, it's, it's that knowledge base that can be of benefit for the community. But also we're finding that there is architects that are buried in every nook and cranny of the country that we think about the coolest and most innovative architecture as being in cities. But actually there's some really innovative practitioners that have moved to West Clare or moved to Donegal, especially during lockdown, who are now thinking, this is where I live. What yeah. do I do here? How can I contribute? And do you think that having that emotional attachment to where they live and and what they do helps with that design because they're not kind of detached from it. It's not just a project on a piece of paper. Mm. They're going to be living in the design that's created. Oh yeah, they have to live with the client for the rest of their lives possibly. (laughs) So Maybe we should do that with all architects (laughs) that you now have to live in this block of flats. Yeah, but I mean like the the, the idea, the person who lives in a house, in a street, in a community, they have their own set of knowledge. That's a, that's a, that's a, body of knowledge that's really valuable in every design process. So any designer, any architect is looking to try and collaborate with their client in that way. So what happens here is that you have an architect who's also essentially the client as well. You know, they want to create a place that they they want their children to be able to cycle to school. Mm. They want Mm. to be able to go for a nice walk in the evening or have somewhere to sit down and have a cup of coffee after work. You know, those are the things that they want for their community as well. So there's a vested interest in that. Okay, so for communities that want to get involved, or indeed architects that want to get involved, what what, what needs to happen and how how does the process of applying uh, go about? So we actually joke that we strategically plan this over Christmas so that when they're having their Christmas pints in their local pub, <laughs> they, can be, the they, can, they can be... You take out a beer mat and draw on psychopath. Some of the most amazing designs that happen on the back of a beer mat. So that's it. That's it. We're looking at trying to find, like, uh, build on relationships that might already happen in communities where they might already have a relationship with each other. But also maybe you need to go, if you're an architect who have suddenly has moved to you know rural Ireland, so this is focused on towns and villages outside of big cities, mm-hmm that maybe you just have a look and see what's happening. Have I, have, is, there, is there a group in my community that I can just pick up the phone and say, let's have a look at this application? If there's a community group, you might have a look at, you know, even in the golden pages or looking online, is there an architect around here? Look at their website, look at their profile, see if there's someone that you think, God, that'd be, I'd love to talk to them about our town square. 
At the same time, we also on our website, reimagineplace.ie, we're hosting a Google form so people can list their interests. So if you are an architect living in Tullamore, you can write down your website and your location so that maybe a group in Tullamore might be able to contact you as well. Okay, and and there's prizes for this. So yeah, I mean, in the past we have, uh, in the past what we would have done is had the architect manage the budget. So they would have been awarded... Um, the budget to manage and we would have matched them with a community mm. so now we're looking at the community and the architect to apply together and it's up to them to decide how they want to manage that budget we do expect the architect to be paid now that depends on how many days you want to pay the architect for maybe they're there at the very beginning at the very end or maybe they're the ones who is knocking on every's do- everyone's door for six months straight doing all the legwork and you want to pay them accordingly that really is decided between the architect and the group Okay so this, you five Winners are five su- successful proposals and they'll each get €10,000 in funding mm-hmm. uh, under this initiative. So uh, people really need to get moving on this or, or ha- when when is the application it, process ending? Yeah, in January. So, I mean, we've, we, it's not the start. The first week yeah. of January, we let you <laughs> get back to work and get gathered. But you've got a couple of weeks at the start of January to try and just get everything back in place. And we also have two information sessions as well in okay. November and December. If you want to flesh out your idea, come here about some other examples of projects we've done that might be relevant to what you're doing. Um, but yeah, no, we, we would be, we try and we want to see ideas that have legs, you know, that have good and ideas that are relevant to the communities and towns. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, listen, um, people can find out more about it on your yeah. website. Reimagineplace.ie. Okay. And they can they can check that out. And it might be, you might get some really exciting kind of novel projects. Oh, as a yes. Um, it's always fascinating to, to hear. And especially things that are, you know, that there's that every town and village in Ireland is unique and special. We want to hear something that is makes you know makes your town stand out. Okay, all right. Well, people can check that out on reimagineplace.ie. Excellent. Now, the other thing we wanted to talk to you about, Bernadine, because this uh, is something that's a little bit close to my heart, and I was chatting about this at the top of the show, and it is about an exhibition that's taking place in the Science Gallery. Uh, which is showcasing the social history of former Bordnemona workers' uh, cottages. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me we did this a lot when Ireland was in its infancy industrially. I mean, you you, you know about the Guinness Trust mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously Bordnemona and other companies that you know, want to recognise their workers if they wanted to retain them, had to have somewhere to live Mm. at a time maybe of very poor wages and Mm -hmm. difficult social uh, circumstances. Uh, So they built cottages and houses and flats for them to do that. Uh, And of course, it also had the added benefit of keeping them close. Mm. So you couldn't be saying, I'm stuck in traffic, (laughs) I can't get into work. So tell me a little bit about that innovative piece about what Board Nimona did, where they did it and and what remains of that exhibition. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people driving around Ireland might have noticed some uh distinctive housing schemes that, um, let's say in Rochford Bridge, in uh, Kilcormac, there's one in Roscommon, there's six big ones around the country, there's seven actually in total. Um, and they are scheme. The people would call them the Board Nimona villages. Um, so they were designed for the Board Nimona workers. These were 
a really important part of state building, uh, you know, after independence. Mm. You know, this is a de Valera pet project. So Bordemona was a pet project, but also the provision of housing. Part of the idea of really valuing the workers that it wasn't just about energy, but it was actually about providing jobs and dignity and sense of security. So about 600 houses were built in total. Um, over the course of a couple of years, they're quite built quite rapidly. Um, they're designed by an architect, architect called Frank Gibney, mm. who himself was a fascinating character. He had really an, an interesting ideas, including the design of a new capital city that would be north of Athlone, which didn't happen. But, <laughs> yes, yes. But, but once you start looking into him, you find he's a really, really fascinating guy. And so he was he was brought in to design housing for the workers. Initially, the idea was to have, you know, like our council cottages after independence, housing that was dispersed across the landscape, so standalone cottages. But actually, when they looked at what was happening in workers' villages in places like the coal mines in Germany, where we were getting a lot of our engineers from, they actually saw that this garden city style, which is the idea of grouping housing together, have generous open spaces, could really work here. And it was something that was hugely innovative. We never had towns and villages that were really planned in that way in mm. Ireland. And this was, again, a state building project. So we weren't just designing housing, we're actually designing a new way of building rural Ireland. And so right now, the villages are still maintained in the same way as they were built in the 50s. So we have people who will still paint them white, still, you know, they'll still mm. detail them the same way. They're very conscious and respectful and proud of these these housing, even though they would have been quite modest in terms of contemporary housing standards. They provided a huge um, uplift in standard of living for the residents and represents a hugely ambitious project yeah, for Ireland. And, and that was the thing, really, because, I mean, it was at a time in a lot of cases where you could, home ownership was an aspiration mm. and possibly as much then as it is now for a great swathe of the population Mm -hmm. and to suddenly be presented with this home, modest and all as it was. I mean, there were no big glass box dermatanin (laughs) extensions in those days and maybe that's a good Mm. thing. Um, And and it allowed people to live and work together and have that sense of ownership, not unlike what we were talking about previously in terms Mm. of that emotional tie to that place and stop them moving to the big cities maybe Mm -hmm. and, and be where the work is. So, do you think there are lessons to be learned from the way that was done uh, that maybe the employers of today, the Googlers and <laughs> the Intels of people, you know, I was asking the question at the top of the hour, could, could and should they maybe look into that as a, as a kind of a heritage thing? And, and would it even work today? Would we allow it to happen? It's actually fascinating. Anytime I talk to an architect about this project, they love these schemes. They want to learn more about them. They want to see the drawings because what was created was an instant community, an instant mm. sense of a community. Mm. So the car wasn't a priority because nobody had a car. So suddenly when you went walked out your front door, you were seeing your neighbours. It was very pedestrian friendly. So we would look at them now as a model of sustainable urban design. So these are these sets of houses that were designed to be plugged right into a town. You walk to the shop, you walk to the school um, and you have a sense of shared space the villages that we're looking at now we're looking at um, one in Kilcormark and one in Clintuskert so that's Roscommon and Offaly um, they still maintain that sense of ethos in Clintuskert um, they have a community orchard a community polytunnel a community composter there's a huge sense of shared 
um, assets, shared space and a collective identity that came through working together and being supportive of each other through everything. And we're hearing that being passed down through three or four generations of people. So the idea of designing a community with that in mind, the idea of designing three or four generations into one community is really interesting. Um, and for workers, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of negatives to company towns. You know, they could have been, you know, internationally, they didn't have the best reputation. But I think in Ireland, Bordemona actually did a really good job mm. of making sure that that people had a sense of ownership over their commu- over the villages. Mm, mm. And so right now, I actually don't really call them the Bordemona villages anymore. I see them as the workers' villages yeah. because they're, they're, the workers inherited the legacy. They, they're the ones who are now looking after the the legacy of this design. They and, want to promote it. Despite working all over the place and doing all different things and nothing to do with, with turf or, or energy production anymore. Now, you're not mm. going to fit all of that <laughs> into the science gallery. So tell us what people can expect yeah, to see. So we were working with four architects and two communities and they were looking at, well, what's important to them now during this huge transition away from industrial peat harvesting? Mm. So what's their identity when they're not no longer the workers' villages? So... What the architects were looking at was things like, well, how do they transition from brown to green tourism? Um, what is their role as um, as set pieces of industrial heritage? You know, how can they make sure that they're considered as as a tourism offering? Yeah. So that was the architects were working at these visions and and ideas about how you know different concepts that can be then used by the community when they want to, let's say, apply for funding in the future for mm-hmm. for protecting their buildings. And so those are going to be on display. We also, one of the ideas that one of the communities was really interested in was how do they protect and showcase their industrial heritage, that they are the ones who know everything about what Bordnemona did now because mm-hmm. they lived it, they worked it. They, can, they have the manuals for how you prepared the peat so we're testing out the idea of um, like a community heritage museum there as well so it's a blend of looking at the architect's designs but also the community story as well Lovely and uh, people can go and have a look at that now how long is it on for? It's on until the end of January and we're actually having a launch um, on the 9th of November which is next Wednesday at 5.30 if people would like to come and join that as well All right. well Bernardine Carroll Engagement Officer with the Irish Architecture Foundation thanks a million for joining us on the show Thank you it's lovely to come in Still to come on the home show, we are going to be dealing with your design dilemmas after the break. The Home Show on News Talk. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan and it's lovely to have you along. Uh, today, before the break, I was chatting to the Irish Architectural Foundation about that whole, I suppose, history of artisan cottages and companies that built housing and cottages for their workers. Uh, and it was just a lovely item. I'm a big fan of all that and it should be good to see maybe more companies thinking of doing that. Certainly now at the moment, if you want to listen back to that, you can, of course, do so on the News Talk app, which is up on the website powered by Go Loud. If you'd like to get in touch with us today, it's 53106 for 30 cent or emailing us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and we've had a whole bunch of people who have done just that and I'm delighted uh, to welcome uh, to studio to answer some of our listener questions, your questions that you've sent in to us here at The Home Show uh, is Arlene McIntyre, interior designer and uh, Ventura Designs and Arlene, it's lovely to have you back. Well, good morning. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah. Now listen, you have been taking a look at some of these because of I course have. this is your bread and butter this is yes. people come into you solve this problem for me this interior design dilemma uh, and you do just that so it's great to see uh, some questions coming in so let's crack on with these uh, Paul in Whitehall in Dublin mm-hmm. uh, sent in a, a text my kitchen is a galley 
style upstairs. For medical reasons, I have to convert a room downstairs to my new kitchen. I've bought the biggest Bosch fridge freezer and only have a small space for shelving and a pantry press for my food with my new electric cooker, which is arriving next week. So he is looking for tips to maximise the space that remains. Arlene, it struck me that there might be a lot of people in the position where they have to reimagine their homes because of something that is outside their control. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can't use the stairs anymore or they have to move from upstairs to downstairs. So talk to me a little bit about what that involves and how you how you need to rethink that. Yeah, we have had projects whereby there's been unfortunate circumstances that they hadn't thought would ever happen to them and you just need to kind of work around a very quick... Um, an easy to use solution in those instances. Uh, also, one one couple we dealt with had to rehome their partner down to the basement of their home, and it was really hard. Mm. So it's both emotional uh, in every way and challenging in trying to figure out how to make everything work and flow for the family. Indeed. Now, a galley kitchen, um, you know, is a kind of that interior space, possibly between yes. two rooms where, yes. where you can have it. So to, to convert a room downstairs for another kitchen, so maybe this person, maybe Paul has now a room, maybe with a window yes. or a different type of an access. Mm-hmm. So what sh- things should he be thinking about the rest of the space? It sounds like um, he has just focused on having what we would refer to as a kitchenette. So it really just has the essentials for cooking and living there. Mm-hmm. So I think he just needs to really consider utilising every single nook, corner and cranny of his new space that he's going to be working cooking from. Um, try and maximise as much space as possible. Maybe only keep your everyday cooking um, appliances in that space. Perhaps look at getting hooks on the walls. Nice. Get all your cups on the walls, your pots and pans on the walls. People forget about doing that in Mm. tiny spaces. Mm. Really utilising the space over the refrigerator. So if it's a really large refrigerator, he definitely has double doors where he can get clever storage above that. So that might be something to consider. Um, Do you think that sometimes we kind of hang on to, like I know if I open my cupboard where I have all mugs and cups, like I, I could easily give yes. tea to 50 people <laughs> which I would never Definitely. ever have and I think maybe we need we just need to say do you know what the most I'm ever going to have Definitely. here are probably four people Definitely. and if I have four mugs and a couple in the dishwasher that's exactly. all I need. exactly you're not going to be baking cakes down there and no. uh, and all that so Same I think glasses exactly so just really think about how you're going to use your, your new kitchen space on a day to day basis really focus on clever storage use your windowsill People forget about that. Use over your refrigerator. I would definitely recommend hanging pots and pans and hooks where you feel it's you can reach it comfortably mm. and, and it suits your everyday life. And of course, there's hooks you can put inside cupboards yes. um, to hold things as well that maybe we of don't course. think about that. Definitely. And a lot of people uh, also forget about their utensils. And you don't actually need separate uh, storage for your utensils. You can also double up your cutlery tray to kind of hold everything. Mm, okay. So, and in terms then of colour, light is better, light is bright or, or not so much? I would say definitely keep your kitchen space, if it's, if it's a kitchenette, really light and bright so it does feel bigger. And I think in those instances, I actually like working with a glossy finish. I generally don't reach for the gloss, but I think here that would help bounce light around the room. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay, very good. And good lighting is key too. Yeah. Okay, because you you like that under the under the counter lighting. Strip lighting. lighting. Yeah. 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 
of course, this person will need cooking, uh, light, task lighting, strip lighting. So all those things to be considered. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's uh, Paul then. Hopefully you got some tips from that. Now, we had Sharon on as well and she said, can you recommend something for this kitchen space? Uh, She has sent in photographs of a kind of a sitting room leading into a kitchen dining room. She said, the table is not doing it for me and I don't want an island. It just feels a bit open and it's missing something. Now, just to describe Sharon's, it's a kind of a small round table with four or five chairs, uh, but it's in the middle of quite a large space and it yes. does look a bit lost Arlene it does it? I, I can actually see her dilemma and then there's sort of a curved shaped door to one side as well so there's loads of angles it's a very square shaped kitchen um, it's a lovely sized kitchen actually but I was having a think about this and I think the solution would be to get a peninsula so it's not actually an island but the peninsula would allow you just to break up the kitchen from the dining space. Okay. I think that's really important. And so that kind of juts out from an existing piece exactly. of furniture. So it's not a standalone no. island in no. the middle. Exactly. Okay. And you can have two very uh, nice, neat bar stools there. It can be somewhere to have a cup of coffee or check your, your emails in the morning. I think it's also important to try and break the kitchen space so it just slightly kind of feels like you know you're defining the two areas from dining yeah, to cooking. Yeah and I wonder whether Sharon's concerned because some people might be that in fact by putting in a barrier or a breaker it would make the kitchen look smaller. Yeah. But, but that's, that's not what happens. No definitely a peninsula is something to be considered. Okay so maybe Sharon if you're not convinced you could take a baby step and maybe just get a large I don't know this is me now thinking outside the box yeah. and a large piece of plywood and just just have a look at what that might exactly. look like. Stick it up. You can always get rid of it if you hate it. Um, and maybe would you change that table a little bit? Because that I love a round table, but it's a little bit lost. It there. is, it is. And if you do go for the peninsula, if you do choose to do that, I would recommend going for a slightly more rectangular shaped dining table. Okay. Just to elongate that area as you enter. And you can actually just put your your new dining table closer to the window, pull it out for Christmas and family occasions. But I think on a day-to-day, you could probably just tuck that in closer to the window. Okay, something maybe with the leaf. Exactly. Okay. Or extendable leaves, yeah. That Good. You, yeah. Okay, all right. And maybe those sure. wooden chairs, maybe paint them up a bit or, you know, um, change the cushions or something that would just tie the, exactly. the look in together. Yeah, and if she's willing to maybe uh, get a new dining table and chairs, maybe a soft upholstered seat might be nice too. Okay, good idea. Right. Uh, now, Colleen from Carrafin in County Clare says, love the show. Listen every Saturday. Thanks very much, Colleen. I'm seeking advice on getting two lampshades recovered. They're old shades brought back from America. I've gone the route of getting a European frame covered, but it was a disaster because it wasn't measured properly. Do you know anyone who would recover existing lampshade frames? And she has sent in the picture of some very sorry looking lampshades altogether. <laughs> I know. So getting, oh. now maybe, so maybe they have a sentimental value for Colleen or she just likes the They're look beautiful them. though. They are actually. And, yeah. and one has a particularly unusual shape. Looks like a giant hat box. <laughs> so does. what would you recommend? There are it lots does. of people doing this kind of oh, thing. Oh, there is. There are. Yeah, we for had, sure. We for had sure. Shady and the Lamp Inn well, in Terra Nure. That's They're fantastic. the very lady I was going to yeah. ask actually recommend uh, Hick and Lighting actually do a reupholstering service of the shades but the shade would need to be more like a harder shade it would need to be in a laminate material um, but they they do offer that service so so definitely check in with them first as well Hick and Lighting next to the Brazen Head very local city centre super spot or Shady and the Lamp and they do the stitching 
So if I'm if I really if I'm having a look at this picture again, it does look like there's some kind of piping and stitching happening there. Mm, there's so, certainly a lot of wires uh, uh, structurally yeah. in this. It so, looks like an antique shape as well. Uh-huh. So maybe. Needs repair need a little and, more specialized. And, yeah, and and she does uh, down in that shop because we've had we've had them on the show, and I pass it regularly because it's not far from where I live. Yes, and there's fabulous stuff with fringing yeah. and fabrics, and it's done Embellish very it. carefully. Yeah, have fun. Shades are a great place to have fun with. I love covering shades with velvet fabric or silk fabric. And I think shades are really important for pulling and tying a room together as well. They're always forgotten, and they should always be considered. Yeah, I think we've we've got so used to having the little pin lighting in the ceiling and I know. everything bright as you yeah. know as a studio. But there are amazing ways to bring colour into a space. People forget about shades. Yeah, yeah. because you can you can really go to town on them because they're a small space, but yeah. you can go a bit mad, can't you? Big time, depending on your style. If you've got like navy accents in the room, but you don't want it to be overloaded with navy. Navy shades are very elegant and smart, and they can look really warm in the evenings as well. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. have fun. And of course, the bulbs. You can have a bit of crack with the bulbs. For colours, sure. Can't you? For sure. And you can pipe them, you can trim them, you can get lovely beading on them. So it really depends on your own personal uh, taste. But yes. Okay. So, uh, Colleen, go for it. Um, lots of options there and uh, have a look around uh, at what might be available. Uh, and hopefully you will get your lamp sorted. Uh, of course, a lot of people are doing a bit of upholstering themselves and they taking are. on DIY projects and maybe with mixed effect. But, you know, you could start with something. Something like a lampshade, couldn't For sure, have fun. Just maybe check YouTube, have a look online and see what others are doing at home. You can learn a lot from YouTube, I think, when it comes to arts and crafts. Indeed, well, and everything else, it would seem, you know. Yeah. And in terms of patterns, Arlene, generally speaking, um, you do have to be a little bit careful maybe in sitting rooms where you have too much clashing fabric. I mean, you were talking there about picking out accent colours or, or having them there. Yes. But a lot of um, beautiful fabrics come in flowers or birds yeah. or yeah. fronds or whatever uh, and, and maybe something small like a lamp or a lampshade is a place to get started Absolutely, positively I agree yeah. So have fun with your shades. Good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Super. Well, listen, uh, Arlene, what are you up to at the moment? How is uh, the winter season going for you and your clients? It's going very well. It's an extremely busy period for us. Um, we have launched a new side to our business, which is called Arlene McIntyre Design, which I'm very excited about. It's it's not new in the sense that we've been offering this service for 100 years, but uh, we're now, if you like, coining it as 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 its own interior architecture service that we're providing. Good. Okay. Yes. So people. That's are for our larger projects, okay. whereby you might be working with them from the ground up on a on a larger scale project. Mm. Okay. Yes. Right. You'll be busy. Yep. We are. <laughs> Thank God. All right. Well, listen. Thanks a million, as always, for joining us uh, this morning on the Home Show. It's lovely. Thank you for you. having me. Take care. Now, if you are in the process of switching bank providers and for full disclosure purposes, I am, it can be a challenging and a confusing process. Well, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission says one in eight have yet to even decide on a new bank and they are about to be chucked out of, of either Ulster Bank or KBC wh- wh- where they are at the moment. So to discuss where this whole thing is at, I am joined by Brian Hayes, Chief Executive of the Banking and Payments Federation. Brian, you're very welcome uh, to the Home Show. Thanks very much, Sinead. Now, look, I mean, this isn't good, right? Uh, and, you know, it's like a perfect storm with these two banks leaving. Um, the CCPC research uh, is quite disturbing. 60% of people have experienced challenges switching. This is despite the presence of a 
switching code, which is supposed to make things easier. Uh, and while half have opened a new account, one in eight haven't even decided what they're going to do here. What is your sense of where all of this is at for customers? Well, I've always said, Sinead, that this is a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, this started in April of this year um, and it's going to go on till August of next year between both banks. Both banks have given uh, a six-month period uh, for people to resolve their position with the bank. So, you know, it's a six-month rolling average. It's not just over six months. And once you get notification, you have six months to move. Now, if, if the CCPC are saying that one and eight haven't decided, that means seven and eight have decided. And in a circumstance where, you know, we have still many more months of this to do, that's not bad where we are because this is, it is awkward for consumers. It's difficult for consumers. It's difficult for, for the remaining banks as well because they've had to deal with an, an understandable surge in new applications for current accounts right the way across the system. And for other providers like credit unions and Impulse to also are providing those services. So, um, you know, we're conscious of the disturbance that this is causing people. Uh, we have to get it right. We have to get good customer outcomes for people. But of course, you'd have to wonder whether the people that are still struggling with this and finding difficulty would be, uh, you know, I don't want to generalise, but possibly maybe predominantly those who need more assistance. You know, maybe somebody to sit down with them. People who aren't on the internet can't hop an on and off online and maybe live in an area with no internet connection. So do you think that there are more that branches can be doing? And uh, listen, there's been a call of the branches. There's lots of places that don't have their branch left uh, that KBC and Ulster Bank could be doing more to help them along. So like that, there's two bits to that. There's the banks who are leaving, which like I think your listeners need to be aware of this. That's 25% of the Irish retail banks are leaving the market. And they're leaving the market for, you know, obvious reasons that it's a difficult landscape to operate in. So the other 75% of, of the pillar banks and other providers like Untrust and Credit Unions and other providers who provide current accounts, they're working really hard to provide a service for that 25% of the retail base that's leaving. To your point, um, I, I fully get the idea and the reality for lots and lots of customers. They want to go into a bank branch. They want to sit down with the bank uh, employee to go through uh, all of the forms that they need. I know that. But the truth of the matter is that in excess of 60% of people are opening uh, current accounts online and doing that in a very short period of time. For a lot of people, that is not their option. I fully get that. And that's why we've got to provide a service for those people in branches and elsewhere to make sure that additional support for those customers is there. So we have a lot of really useful um, tips for people on our own website, movingaccount.ie. Really good advice for people on the CCPC um, website Mm. uh, and on bonkers.ie. So there's a lot of things. And the other thing I'll say about the remaining banks, they all have put in place additional staff um, and supports to help those customers who need that additional support. Yeah, well, well, hold on. Well, let's talk about that then because due to this research transferring direct debits and payments. I mean, opening the account is the least of it, Brian. It's correct, the transfer correct. of all the stuff, yeah. the standing orders, the card payments, the direct debits. This is what the research is showing that people are continuing to have the most significant issues with. Is there not a switch, switching code in place that I remember from quite some time ago that is supposed to 
create a smooth pathway for this. Do it all within 10 working days. Your one bank does it with another bank. All these communications take place and the customer uh, just not quite sits back but allows that happen. I mean, even in my own example, and I am not uh, alone here because I've heard this over and over and over again, I had to physically ask for the switching code and then I was told, don't worry about it, don't bother with it, do it yourself, it's quicker. I mean, is that the right message to be giving to bank customers? So, so, um, so, so he, he, here's, here's the truth of what's happening here because there's a lot of people who talk about the switching code who don't really understand who it involves and who it doesn't involve. It absolutely involves the exiting of the remaining banks in terms of opening and closing your account. But it doesn't have automatic capture of direct debit originators. So it's one thing to open an account, and I fully get your point, and you're right. The easier bit of this equation is opening the account. The more challenging piece for consumers and customers of banks is to move over all of their payments. Their uh, direct debit originators, the people who pay insurance, those who telcos, Mm. your sky, all of your public utilities, banks can't control those. We don't have authority under the switching code to go into your account and take money from your account to another without being authorized by a consumer Mm. to do that. And we've worked really hard. This isn't about shedding responsibility here. We've worked really hard as an industry over the last year to work with significant direct debit originators uh, to make sure that they ramp up capacity as well to deal with their customers because otherwise they lose out when the transfer mm. uh, occurs. And we've, we've worked really hard to get that right. But to answer your question, there is work for consumers here. And that's why, you know, in the six months, people um, have found it easier, I think, to open the account in a, in a new bank, it's now activating those accounts will be the crucial thing mm. and moving over their direct debits. Yeah, all right. Well, look, there, there's definitely continuing work to do in that regard and I think yes. those banks are, are definitely going to have to um, uh, possibly look at that again. I was watching them in the Oireachtas hearings actually about what they were doing and what they weren't doing and there still seems to be a little bit of dissonance there. Now, look, there were also figures out as there are every month about mortgage drawdowns and approvals and all that continued growth it's it's kind of back to nearly boom level stuff now and it seems to me uh, Brian Hayes that actually getting the mortgage is maybe the easier bit now um, as opposed to to finding a house do you think it was a good idea for the central bank to relax the lending rules and allow people to borrow or get more indebted up to four times their income first time buyers well, I mean, you and I know, um, Sinead, that the, the number one mandate of the Central Bank of Ireland is around financial stability. That's their mandate. That's their mm. responsibility. That's what they're accountable for. Um, it's it's not the industry's uh, job to tell the Central Bank how to do its job. No, but this we is didn't... an inflationary um, prospect yeah, but, because, ooh, you know, ooh, it's going to increase house prices. Gabriel well, McLeod, the ooh, governor, said as much. Well, that, but maybe invite them on your show and they, they'll answer those questions. Um, we, we didn't look for this. We didn't lobby for it. In the consultation around the macro pro rules, our issues were around the question of allowances. They weren't around changing the loan to income from three, uh, four to three, uh, from three and a half to four. Um, so we'll work under any rules that the CBI determined to be right. I've read the literature on this. And I think what they're trying to get at in their assessment is they, they see a certain cohort of first-time buyers who should be first-time buyers, who should, because they have income to support it, be able to support a mortgage, who are in long-term rental paying maybe 2000 plus 
a month who probably get a mortgage on a cheaper basis. And what they've actually done in changing the rules from three and a half times to four, mm. they have it is going to have an inflationary effect. They've admitted that in the literature. But on the other side of the equation, they've reduced the number of allowances. Brian Hayes, Chief Executive of the BPFI, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Now, still to come on The Home Show after the break, I'll be chatting with a decluttering expert about the emotional attachment that we have to our clothes sometimes and how it can be so hard to get rid of items. So do stay tuned for that, if that's you. Uh, I will see you after the break. The Home Show on News Talk. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk with me, Sinead Ryan. I'm with you till the top of the hour. Uh, now, before the break, uh, Arlene was handling our listener questions on renovation projects. And we have more self-help coming up now. If you'd like to get involved in the show, you can text us at 53106 for 30 cents. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com at any stage. But as we head into November, we're here now. It's the perfect time to like take a long, hard look at your wardrobe and decide maybe how to pair it back a bit. Joining me now to chat through how to do this is Emma Gleeson, professional declutterer and author of Stuff Happens. Manage your clutter, clear your head and discover what's really important. Emma, I can't wait to find out what's really important. I spent uh, last weekend swapping over with great reluctance, it has to be said, my summery kind of stuff for my winter woolies. Um, and it's kind of, it was comforting and depressing at the same time. Uh, it's it's a tough enough thing to do, isn't it? Very, very difficult. And I think often people feel embarrassed that they're daunted by, um, you know, the wardrobe, the capital letters. Um, but it's so normal. Like, I don't know anyone who has a calm relationship with their clothing collection. <laughs> and I've certainly never had a client who has. There are so many reasons why this is difficult. And I think what's really important for people, and it, my uh, main tip is uh, when you're going through uh, what to get rid of and what to keep, you have to identify what each item is kind of bringing up for you. So some of that is, yes, will I need it? Um, and try and dig down into what you mean by that. You know, is it, is it will I need it for a special occasion, for some imaginary event that I probably will never attend? You have to kind of do therapy with each item. You know, Really? really? The sparking yeah, joy so, kind of moment? Well, it's not even the sparking joy because I don't think that's, I don't think that's complex enough. You know, that like it might be, oh, I spent loads of money on this and I can't even look at it because I'm ashamed of the money I spent. So just throw it back in the wardrobe and I won't think about it. Um, it could be, you know, for someone who has maybe recently given birth and become a parent, you know, their life and their body has changed and they don't want to get rid of those clothes yet because they represent, you know, a past life or, you know, a person... An aspect of themselves they don't want to let go of. There's a lot of shame in our wardrobe, um, and clothes can bring us joy and confidence, but they can also bring up this kind of stuff. So yeah, uh, the the money that people have spent is a huge block for mm. people. And what I would say is, look, that money is not coming back to you. It, it, having those clothes sit in your wardrobe, taunting you, um, it's just making you feel terrible. And you have to be gentle with yourself and just try and let them go. And I would also say if people have hopes that they might get some money back from from things, I would manage your expectations about that because um, it's a lot of effort to resell your clothes and you might not get that much for them. So unless they're really high-end designer, I wouldn't recommend going to the, the hassle of it. Yeah. Um, just forgive yourself for the money spent and uh, free your mind. 
Um, uh, and then obviously body image is a huge thing. You know, people have put on weight, people have lost weight. Um, illness has changed your capacity for things. You should be opening your wardrobe or your chest of drawers or whatever to clothes that fit you and make you feel confident every day. If you're looking at half your wardrobe that doesn't fit you, then you're you're already um, it, you know you're 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 starting off your day in a terrible state um, because uh, and you'll it'll also make you want to buy more clothes, mm. less satisfied with the clothes that you have. So that's a huge tip: is anything that doesn't fit you, put it out of sight. You don't have to get rid of it. But maybe put a label on where you're storing it of the date when you're storing it. And if it comes around again in five years, it's maybe time to say, okay, maybe I, I need to gently forgive myself and get rid of this. Um, yeah, I, and, and it is it is a tough thing to do for lots of people because there is that very aspirational really, piece. It's really, really difficult. Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's always that thing about decluttering and clearing out the wardrobe that it's a great time to do that division of thing. I'll get rid of that. We'll put that down to the charity shop. We'll hit, uh-huh. hang on to that. We'll put this under the bed in one of those vac bag things, uh, speaking, from, speaking from experience. Yeah. <laughs> but it does leave gaps in the wardrobe. And do you think we are too quick to fill them with new stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think um, there's often a feeling of kind of, oh, I deserve to go on a shopping trip, you know, after I've done the clear out. Um, And just be really cautious of that because um, we should be building a wardrobe that has longevity and that will last us, you know, years and years and years instead of just one season. Okay, Emma Gleeson, professional declutterer and uh, your book Stuff Happens is out in shops uh, and people can go and get some fantastic tips and hints from that. Emma, listen, thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show. It was absolutely great to have you and that is going to spur people on, hopefully this weekend now, to do a little (laughs) bit of decluttering. Thanks so much, Nate. Now, that is all we have time for this week. If you'd like to get involved in the show, if you have questions or topics you'd like us to cover, as uh, our listeners did previously with Arlene, well, get them into us, 53106 for 30 cent, or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com with pictures if you can, and we'll have an expert take a swing at it. And don't forget to check out the Home Show podcast, which is up on the News Talk website. My thanks today to Maurice O'Sullivan producing with Steve Daunt on research and Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy on sound. Up next, it's Anton Savage. Have a fantastic weekend, and remember, we'll be back here on Saturday at 8 a.m.